So we're journeying through Exodus this summer. And in chapter 15 of Exodus, the Israelites led by Miriam and Moses sing praises to God, kind of like we just did, glorifying God's name for deliverance through the Red Sea. They sing, there's no suffering, there's no pain. Lord, you are awesome. The song that is recorded in the 15th chapter of Exodus begins and ends with these words. Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both the horse and the driver the Lord has hurled into the sea. Sing to the Lord, he is highly exalted. Both the horse and the driver the Lord has hurled into the sea. The Israelites then travel into the wilderness. What the Bible calls the wilderness really would look to us like the desert. And that shouldn't be too far from your imagination living in San Antonio 11 days in a row, right? Over 100 degrees yesterday. So you get what this wilderness looks like. You get what this desert feels like. They travel three days into the desert and they find no water. They arrive at a place called Mara where the water is bitter. And I think probably not coincidentally, the people are bitter too. They grumble to Moses. They say to Moses, this water is bitter. What are we to drink? And the Lord shows Moses a piece of wood and he picks up that wood and he throws it into the water and the water becomes fit to drink. The Lord says to the people, Shema or listen, I am the one who heals you. Then the people arrive at an oasis. It's called Elim, and it has 12 springs. So there's a spring of water for every tribe in Israel. And there are 70 palm trees. So there's plenty of shade at this oasis. When they set out from Elim, they find themselves again in the wilderness, in the desert. And the whole community then grumbles against Moses and Aaron. So I have two verses of scripture for you today from the 16th chapter of Exodus, verses 3 and 4. Then the Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and we ate our fill of bread. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day, and that way I will test them whether they follow my instructions or not. This is the story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So just almost exactly five years ago, my son was very excited for his first day of school, his first day at our neighborhood elementary school where his sisters had gone. For too many years, I think he had to live in their shadow and be Alice and Claire's baby brother. And so he was really excited when that first day of kindergarten rolled around. He was going to be able to eat in a cafeteria. He'd never done that before. And we bought him a backpack. He didn't have a backpack when he went to preschool. So he had his backpack, and he was really eager to get started that day. Like many kinder parents, I was eager to pick him up in the afternoon. 
and I found myself at the very front of the car line there at the elementary school ready to get him. But when he got into my back seat and he put his seatbelt on, I could see his little furrowed brow. And as I pulled away from the curb, he started in. Mom, did you know that I had to walk in a line all day long and I had to keep my hands to myself? I can't touch who I want to touch. Did you know when I go out on the playground, I can only play on the kindergarten part of the playground. I don't get to play on the whole playground. And also, did you know that when I'm in the hallway, I am not allowed to say a single word. That place, he said, is a kinder jail. (laughs) You sent me to kinder jail, and I am not going back in there. (laughs) Now, he did go back in there, (laughs) but his grandfather likes to say he was released on good behavior nine months later. (laughs) Um, It was not what he expected, kindergarten, and neither was the wilderness what the Israelites expected. Terence Fretheim, who is an Old Testament scholar, wrote that the dancers and the singers are stopped dead in their tracks. This is not what God promised them. I am reminded when I read this passage of scripture that change often brings at least a little discomfort, and many times it brings some suffering. So it's an old question. It's older than the Gospels. It's as old as Moses and the people who followed him. Do we belong here in the wilderness? Do we belong here in this uncharted territory? Do we belong in this place where there is no order, where there is no reliable life support? The larger passage that begins in the second half of chapter 15 extends into the 17th chapter of Exodus. In verse 7, this question is posed at the very end of this passage. Is the Lord among us or not? That's what the Israelites want to know. Is the Lord among us or not? So the primary way that we hear the Israelites protest that they don't belong in this place. Where is God anyways? Is the Lord among us or not? The primary way that we hear them give voice to that is that they grumble as they walk through the wilderness. They grumble. They complain. When we read this part of Exodus, we hear that it's not what they expected. And the people use what they see right in front of them, what they feel around them, their immediate circumstances to judge reality. So basically grumbling sounds like this. Grumbling sounds like this doesn't feel good to me. (laughs) It's too cold in here or it's too hot out there. It's time to eat because I'm starving. I can feel it. And grumbling even goes one step further than that. Grumbling goes to the point where you say, because I'm not getting my fill Everything is hopeless. I'm hot. We're probably all going to evaporate. (laughs) I'm hungry. We're all going to die of starvation. So a grumble is just a bit fatalistic. It's because I don't feel good that the end is near. And grumbling is very self-centered and it's very nearsighted. I also think that biblically speaking, grumblers, grumbling 
is a group phenomenon. So you can't just put it on your spouse or your child. But often, biblically speaking, a grumble rumbles through the people. It's kind of like what I learned about anxiety in family systems theory. What family systems theory says about anxiety is it moves through a system of people like electricity. So it doesn't just stay in one part, but it travels through the family or it travels through the group. It's kind of like a herd of cattle when one of them makes a sound or one of them shifts and the rest of the herd shift. The rest of the, the herd will make a sound. So grumbling, I believe, has a herd mentality to it. It's, it. It affects the whole group. It rumbles through a group of people. Grumbling is not this. Grumbling is not, I'm, I'm at the end of my rope and I want to call on God. Actually, the Bible is full of laments that voice just that kind of prayer. I don't know what to do. I'm at the end of my rope, and I turn to the Lord to intervene. Grumbling is also not, I have some honest doubts, or I have honest questions that I need answered. Grumbling never sounds like I don't know. Grumbling always sounds like I know the answer. I know what's going on here, and we're all in for it. (laughs) That's what grumbling sounds like. So a grumbler has nothing to learn from the wilderness. A grumbler has nothing to learn from depression or from grief or from despair. They just want the pain to end. And their own nearsightedness keeps them from having any hope. There's a midrash, a story about a conversation that happened between two who walked through the Red Sea following Moses through the Red Sea. One of the guys said, what is all this mud and all this muck to the guy who was next to him? And the guy who was next to him said, yeah, there's just mud all over the place. This is just like the slime pits of Egypt. And the reply was, well, what's the difference then? Mud here, mud there, it's just all the same. These two guys grumbled all the way across the bottom of the Red Sea. And because they never once looked up, rabbis say, they never understood what was going on on the distant shore. They never understood why people were celebrating, singing, and dancing. For those two Israelites, because they never looked up, it was like the miracle never happened. I wonder how much of what God is doing I miss. Because I'm just seeing what's right in front of me. I'm just noticing the mud and the muck. And I'm grumbling about it with the person who's next to me. I'm reassured when I read this passage of scripture. And quite frankly, I'm also amazed that the Lord stays in relationship with the people through this part of Exodus. The fourth verse that we read earlier in chapter 16 The Lord says this, I'm going to rain bread from heaven, and each day the people will go out and they'll gather enough for that day. And that way, I'm going to test them. I'm going to test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. So I want to take just a minute to talk about that word test, because the word that is translated in Exodus here 
as test is not a test like we understand a test. The Lord is not giving the people a pop quiz here. God is not testing the people to evaluate them or to put a grade on them or to see whether or not the people are worthy to be called God's people. But instead, God tests them to instruct them. God tests them to teach them this test is for their benefit it's not for God's benefit it's so that the people will learn so that they will progress in their understanding of who God is God is experientially teaching them about provision and God is experientially teaching them how to trust him they are being given a story to remember a story when everything looked hopeless God intervened, the Lord showed up, and the Lord provided and gave more. It's another example to me, another reminder that the stories of our faith are so important because they give us a wider view. They help us to hope in the midst of the difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in right now. These people... These people who are wandering in the wilderness just witnessed God move in very mysterious and miraculous ways in their very recent past. And when they get right into the wilderness just three days in, instead of remembering what just happened in Egypt, instead of remembering what happened at the Red Sea, they are willing to make what Walter Brueggemann calls a very bad trade. They are willing to say, and this is the only time that the Lord's name crosses their lips. They are willing to say, we wish that we had died back in Egypt. Things are so bad right now. And the Lord says, don't make that bad trade. I'm going to show you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to show you that you can trust me. I'm going to show you that I will provide for you. You have no water But I'm going to give you water that's not bitter, but is sweet. You will have rest in an oasis where there is plenty of space to rest and you will have enough to eat. Bread from heaven, the scripture says, bread from heaven. And you're going to have this bread from heaven even on the day that I rest. At every test, the Lord says to the people, you are going to learn more about me. You're going to see about you're going to see more about how I provide, how I give to you. Alexander Shia is a theologian who um, has published a book called Heart and Mind that many of us on staff have read and really like. And Shia is hopefully coming to this church to teach in January of this next year. So I want you to start hearing his name and hear what he teaches But Alexander Shia, one of the things that he teaches is that there are four paths in the spiritual journey. And these four paths play themselves out in the Gospels, in the writing of the Gospels, and that the paths were even present in how the Gospels were read in the early church. And so the four paths go like this. There's change, and then there's suffering, and then there's joy. And then there's service. And they correspond to the four Gospels like this. Matthew. Matthew talks about change. Mark about suffering. John about joy. And Luke and Acts about service. 
What Shia proposes is that one of those paths flows into the other. So change brings suffering, which eventually loosens into joy. And then the joy and the joy we find ourselves walking out our new learnings in service. We don't experience that cycle just once. So it's not one and done, but instead this occurs over and over again over the course of a lifetime. It, re- it occurs repeatedly. Whenever we experience change, um, it jolts us into some amount of suffering, and then suffering loosens up into joy and eventually into service. It's a model for transformation, a model of how we grow in our faith. And so Mark is the gospel that engages the reality of suffering. And one of the ways that we can see that in Mark's gospel is the landscape of Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel plays itself out in the desert, in the wilderness, and on really rough bodies of water on the sea. So in every image of wilderness, of desert, of the sea that Mark gives us, Shia wants us to know that it's important that when he gives us a rough place, that gospel of Mark also reassures us with hope at every point where there is testing at every point where there's disorientation there is also hope so when sin is confessed in the gospel of mark cleansing is received when heaven is torn apart in the gospel of mark a dove descends in the wilderness jesus encounters both beasts and jesus encounters angels and when the, sea, when the sea is rocky and rough, it's the Messiah that just goes stomping across that sea in the Gospel of Mark. Mark always displays the truth in a disorienting, suffering uh, path. But Mark always, always, always talks about hope when he talks about disorientation. It's as if Mark wants us to hear that the wilderness has something to offer us, that we belong in that place of disorientation, that it's not a spot to be avoided or a place to be fearful, but instead the wilderness is a place where we belong. It's a place of promise. It's a place that has spiritual growth for us. The movie The Shack tells a story uh, that was first written uh, that was first written ten or fifteen years ago for us that the book was titled by the same name the shack and the story um, talks about a man who's the main character's name is Mac and he loses his little girl uh, tragically she's kidnapped and then murdered and in the movie um, he has a chance encounter with three persons who are supposed to be the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so there's one, there's one scene in the movie where Mac turns to the Christ figure and he asks the Christ figure, do all roads lead to Papa, lead to the Father? And the Christ figure turns to Mac and he says, no, all roads don't lead to Papa, but I... I will go down any road to find you. Any wilderness, any place of disorientation, Christ will go there to find you and to find me. 
What I want you to hear this morning is don't waste your time in the wilderness. You are not alone there. The wilderness always has something to teach us. So all four Gospels record this story. This is going to be a very familiar story to you. They record a story where there's a crowd, a very large crowd in the wilderness. Three of the Gospel writers describe the setting as being desolate. And Jesus is in this desolate place with 5,000 people. And he feeds them with what most would say is not enough. Five loaves and two fish. In John's gospel, following that miracle, Jesus says to those who are listening, It is my Father who gives the true bread from heaven. And then he says this, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of heaven. And in John's gospel, there's an interesting uh, response to this miracle. In John's gospel, the religious leaders and even some of the disciples have the same response. You know what that is? They grumble. Can you believe it? They grumble. In the Exodus, people grumble because they have no bread. But in John's gospel, the people grumble when the bread is right there in front of them. The bread from heaven. They have bread. And they grumble. It's as if John wants us to hear that some people, there are some people who will never be satisfied. They will never grow up. And some of those disciples and those religious leaders, they leave. Those disciples stop following Jesus, the gospel of John tells us. And Jesus turns to Peter. And he says to Peter, you don't want to leave too? And Peter says to Jesus, where would we go? Where would we go? We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Growing up in the faith, growing up in the faith is truly a recognition that what we need is given to us. What we need is provided for us. You can recognize someone who is mature in the faith, not because they have gray hair, not because they've celebrated a lot of birthdays, but you will recognize someone who is mature in the faith when disorientation is present, when anxiety is high, when the circumstances say that there's not enough, that person will say, Where else would I go? Where else would I go but here? I'm not going back to Egypt. And I certainly won't run away. Because I have come to know and believe the Holy One of God. I have come to trust God in all circumstances. Would you pray with me? Lord God, ruler of the universe. We do seek to trust you in all things. We want to trust you in all circumstances. When we see difficulty and feel discomfort, would you remind us, Lord, that we are not alone? That even in dire circumstances, you provide and you sustain. When we think scarcity, Lord, would you show us that there is enough? 
We usually want to avoid the wilderness. We are thirsty and hungry and we long for comfort. But you have valuable things to teach us there. Would you teach us trust and hope and gratitude? Grow us in your image and in your likeness. Amen.